Good morning again, 59th Street family, for those of you who are joining us um, a little later today. Uh, so today we're actually going to continue to move forward in our sermon series, uh, Shema, where we have been looking through various key words of the ancient Jewish prayer. And today uh, we begin to see how we are to love the Lord our God. Uh, we're called to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. And so today's key word, the word we're going to be looking at today is heart, or levav, or just lev in short. Uh, but before we begin, uh, let us read the Shema together, which says to us, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And today, as we discuss heart, we're actually going to be taking a deep dive into the culture of the ancient world to see what it actually means. What does heart mean in the ancient world and the ancient culture? Uh, but before we do that deep dive, I think it might be a little helpful, helpful for us, at least, to know what we believe as Westerners, what we believe about our bodies and our minds and our hearts. And so ever since the beginning of Western philosophy, the Western worldview has always seen the heart and the mind as two separate things. Uh, Western culture has always been dominated by the belief that our emotions and our logical thinkings derive from two parts of the self, right? The hearts and the mind. And much of Western philosophy also believed that emotions would come from the body, which is why we have phrases like gut feelings, my gut feeling that this won't work out. Um, these emotions or passions in Western philosophy, they're seen as illogical, as something that needs to be reined in like a wild animal. But unlike emotions, uh, we also have the mind, which is the seat of reason. And the mind consists of logic, of wisdom, reasoning, and it is the ultimate pursuit of Western philosophy and Western culture, the cultivation of logic and reasoning, the cultivation of the mind alone. And unfortunately, um, we see the ramifications of that type of philosophy in our world today, right? For decades, people who sought therapy, who sought the troubles of their hearts, they were seen as mentally weak. Uh, they were seen as people who did not have the mental or logical fortitude to rein in their emotional problems. Uh, emotional and psychological problems of depression and anxiety were treated, unfortunately, as non-issues. And so soldiers who experienced PTSD during World War I and parts of World War II, they're treated as legitimate war criminals, as people who have deserted the battlefields. And so when the dichotomy of emotion and logic came to loving God, it became pretty interesting. It became all about head knowledge. Uh, to know and to love God in Western philosophy meant to study God with our logic and with our reasoning. And so theology became the practice of dissecting this infinite, infinite being, this infinite God into all these neat little intellectual categories. But what we see with the Hebrew understanding of emotions versus reasons is that they all stem from one place, and that is the heart or Lev uh, in Hebrew. In the Hebrew understanding of the world, there's actually no clear split between emotions and reasons because they all come from one place. So let's actually take a look at that in our first sermon point today, 
uh, which is the anatomy of a heart. And let's take a look at it from a Hebrew point of view. And so just as a heart has four parts, right, the left and right atriums and the left and right ventricles, the ancient Israelites also saw the heart as the seat of four aspects of the self. I'm pretty sure this wasn't intentional, but it might be a very helpful thing to remember that there are four aspects, just like there's four parts of the heart. So one of the first things um, that's pretty obvious to anyone who's ever lived is that the ancient Israelites saw that the heart is the source of life. Um, and this is actually a very common theme across all cultures in the past and even in the modern world, uh, because it doesn't take advanced medical research, it doesn't take, you know, signs from the 21st century to realize that once a person's heart stopped beating, life would cease. And so the heart for the ancient Israelites was the source of life itself for a human being, because when it stopped, life ceased. But not only does the heart give life, but the heart is also the seat of all intellectual activity. Uh, in fact, in ancient Hebrew, there is no word for the organ inside your head. There's no word for brain in ancient Hebrew. Reason and wisdom actually would come from your heart. The ability to discern truth from falsity came from the heart. The ability to develop wisdom came from the heart. And to know and to understand something comes again from the heart. And that is why we see in the book of Proverbs that we are encouraged to write them, being the commandments, to write them onto the tablets of our hearts, because that is the seat of knowledge and the seat of wisdom in your heart. We're encouraged to memorize the commandments and to seek to understand the commandments so that we can have wisdom, so that we can be able to discern in our hearts what is good and what is evil in the world. And so we see that the heart is where we are able to make sense of the physical world outside of us and be able to make wise decisions in this world outside of us. But not only is the heart the seat of all intellectual activity, but it is also the seat of all emotional activity as well. Uh, in 1 Samuel, in response to Hannah being unable to have a child, um, her husband in Hebrew literally asks her this. In Hebrew it says, why does your heart quiver? Why does your heart tremble? And in the NIV it's translated as, why are you downhearted? So we see that our hearts are also able to experience things like sadness, anxiety, or depression. Uh, but at the same time, our hearts can also experience immense joy as well. Um, in Isaiah, when he speaks of the Lord's salvation for Jerusalem, he says that in those times, the Israelites' hearts will literally enlarge with joy. And the word enlarge, it's literally the same verb that God uses to talk about Israel's borders being expanded, being enlarged. And so we see a wonderful picture in ancient Hebrew that joy for them is literally a heart expansion, to have a bigger heart, to have your heart grow within you. And so we see so far that the heart is the sustainer of life. We see that the heart is the seat of all intellectual activity. Uh, we also see that the heart is also the seat of all emotional activity, where we understand the world within us. But what we also see is that the heart is also the seat of our decisions, 
and the seat of our choices. Uh, throughout Exodus, it's interesting to see that uh, Pharaoh is unwilling to let the Israelites go because they were, unfortunately, the backbone of his workforce, all of these Israelite slaves, free labor. And so Pharaoh made a willing choice in his heart to not let the Israelites go. And so in response to this desire of not letting the Israelites go, Scripture says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Or another example we can see is in Psalm 24, uh, where the person who is worthy to stand in the presence of an almighty God is a person who has a pure heart, a person whose heart is full of good intentions, is pure in their desires and pure in their choices, who are by nature good and pure. And so when we see that the command for the Israelites to love the Lord your God with all your hearts, it is actually a command for the Israelites and also for us as Christians, right? Because Jesus literally, he, he repeats the same command to us. This is a command for us to love God with our entire being. We're to love God with our entire life. We're to love God with all of our intellect. We're to love God with all of our passion. And we're also to love God with all of our desires and our choices. In short, there should be nothing, there shouldn't be one aspect of our lives that do not seek to love our God. And so what we see is it's, it's actually a very holistic picture, right? Loving God is not just a feeling. It's also understanding God with your mind. It's understanding God with reason and wisdom. But at the same time, it's not the Western trap of only trying to seek God with your hearts and your mind, but it's also seeking God through your passions, to have a genuine love for God as you would have for your friends, for your neighbors, or for your family, and also to love God through your desires and your choices as well. It's not enough to feel. It's not enough just to know. It's not enough just to make good and good and pure decisions. We have to have it all. And that is what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now, unfortunately, there is a big problem for all of us because we are unable, actually, to do any of this. Uh, by nature, we all have heart disease, uh, which brings us to our second sermon point. Uh, because the heart is seen by the ancient Israelites as the source of our entire being, they understood that when the heart is infected or when the heart is calloused, it impacts every single aspect of our lives. If the heart is the sustainer of life, then it is without a doubt that in this life we will all experience death. Uh, for some, it might be something that they are acutely aware of as they have seen loved ones pass away. Or it might be something that they might be struggling with themselves when they come face to face with age and when they come face to face with terminal diseases. Uh, unfortunately, death and decay, they're a fact of the life that we live in. It's a fact that we must all face. Uh, but not only are our physical lives out of whack, uh, but our reasoning is out of whack too. Uh, for the ancient Israelites, as their hearts were hardened, as their hearts were infected and they worshipped other gods, they would perform all sorts of foolish and literally outrageous things that logically made zero sense. Like, for example, sacrificing their own children. In what world would that ever make sense? but because their hearts were out of whack, their reasoning was out of whack. 
But before we cast too much judgment on the Israelites, we have to also acknowledge that our reasoning is out of whack too. I find it absolutely perplexing that racial superiority rhetoric is still spread around this world today. And because it's believed it's led to a fatal shooting last week, uh, which is just the tip of the iceberg amongst all the other atrocities we have witnessed as people falsely subscribe to this doctrine. Uh, I also find it absolutely perplexing how we destroy the very planet that sustains us, that feeds us. Uh, that also, to me, makes absolutely no sense. And so we see that although we can use our intellect and our reasoning to accomplish so many great things in our worlds, we have also at the same time brought so much pain. We have brought so much suffering into this world through our reasoning and through our wisdom, which is actually a warped type of wisdom. And as a result of all the destruction and all the damage in the world outside of us, it leads many to experience turmoil, turmoil and anguish inside of them, as our emotions are out of whack too. We've all experienced periods of intense anxiety or intense sadness as we come to grips with the effects of sin uh, in this world. We've all experienced grief and anger in the face of death. Uh, we have experienced anxiety and worry when we see the rising rates of violence in New York City and the rising cost of rent and the rising cost of basic necessities. We have all experienced anxiousness and worry in response to things that are outside of us. But we also have all experienced the terrible inner critic within our hearts as well that tells us that we are unredeemable, that there is no future, or that life is simply not worth living. And so when we reflect on the world around us and even the world within us, it is of no surprise that our hearts are also filled with anguish. But finally, we also see that our desires and our decisions are out of whack too. Uh, unfortunately, no one can boast, no one can claim that their hearts are totally pure because we all have, at some level, pollution within our hearts. We can all strive toward goodness, um, but as I said last week, we can only be sometimes good. We can never be always good. Um, oftentimes, we have to admit and we have to confess that rather than actively striving towards goodness uh, or the well-being of others, we might have rather sought their harm or their failures instead. Uh, sometimes other people's success reminds us of our own shortcomings, and deep within our hearts, we quietly and we secretly hope that they might fail. And so although we can definitely have the capacity to be good people when we try, we also have an enormous capacity to cause a lot of harm in others and within ourselves as well. And so when we look at the effects of sin in our lives, we see that it infects every aspect of it. Death is a curse we will all face. Our reasoning and ability to follow wisdom is warped. Uh, sometimes our hearts are filled with grief due to circumstances outside of us or inside of us, and our desires and our actions are not always pure as well. And so the human condition, unfortunately, is not that we are sort of broken, it's not that we are partially broken, 
we are entirely broken and that there is no aspect of our lives that are operating as it should be. All of us have heart disease. And so the question is, what are we to do about this? What is the solution to this human condition? For some, they recognize this truth that we all have heart disease. They embrace their brokenness. They embrace it through wild and reckless living in the hopes of turning what is poisonous to the heart into something good. But for those who have lived such a lifestyle, they quickly realize that this lifestyle actually does not intrinsically produce goodness in them or the world around them, no matter how fun it might be in this moment. For others, they try to solve this human condition by adopting a legalistic method of trying harder or doing more so that they can earn a holy status. Uh, but for anyone who has also tried this approach, they will also quickly come to grips with how life-depriving it is to follow goodness out of duty and how easy it is to even turn something good like obedience into something that is evil, where we become like the Pharisees and quickly condemn others or refuse to sit with sinners. And so what are we to do? What are we to do with this human condition? And to answer this, we come to our long-awaited passage today from Deuteronomy chapter 30, where Moses prophesies a promise to the Israelites. Uh, Moses, seeing how the Israelites have stumbled for 40 years in the wilderness, and through also through a prophetic vision from God, he saw that one day the Israelites' hearts will be wicked. And because of their wickedness, it will lead to their own destruction and into their own exile. And Moses, he diagnosed the Israelites' hearts' problem and he gave them a verdict of what will happen, death and exile. But at the same time, Moses does not leave the people hanging either as to how this heart problem can be solved. And so Moses affirms that there is actually a possibility of a renewed heart, uh, which is our final sermon point today. And this is actually where we reach our passage today from Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, verses 1 to 10, which says to us, <clears throat> excuse me, when all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you, and you take them to hearts wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your hearts and with all your soul, according to everything I have commanded you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and more numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your hearts and with all your soul and live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate you and persecute you. You'll again obey the Lord and follow all his commands I'm giving you today. Then the Lord your God will make you most prosperous in all the works of your hands and in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crop, crops of your land. The Lord again will delight in you and make you prosperous, just as he delighted in your ancestors, if you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands and decrees that are written in the book of the law and turn to the Lord your God with all your hearts and with all your soul. 
And so as we read this, uh, actually one of the first things we see is that God actually takes the first initiative in healing the hearts of the Israelites. And you might be surprised that I say this because, you know, if you read through that passage, it really sounds a lot like God is saying to the Israelites that he will only bless them if they obey, that he will only bring them back to the promised land if they follow him with all their hearts and with all their soul. And although this is absolutely true, that they, the Israelites can only receive these blessings from God if they obey, what we see hidden underneath the surface is that God actually takes the first step to make obedience possible. How do we see this? The first thing to understand is that God's covenants with the Israelites is actually a lot like a treaty made between a stronger nation and a weaker nation uh, during that time. And in that culture, it is the duty of the weaker nation to serve and to obey the stronger nation. And this was known back then as a suzerainty treaty. But what is true in all suzerainty treaties is that there is actually never a chance for forgiveness. When the southern kingdom of Judah made a treaty to serve Babylon and then disobeyed that treaty by trying to team up with Egypt, we all know what happened, right? Babylon literally destroyed the entire nation, raised it to the ground, sent all the people into exile, those at least whom he didn't enslave or kill. So we see that in these treaties, there is no chance, there is not a, not a possibility of forgiveness. There is no mercy. There is no grace. None of this is part of what is in these treaties. But what is unique in God's treaty with the Israelites is that the chance for forgiveness is always possible. There is always a chance to move from the curses of the treaty back into the blessings of that treaty. And so what we see is that when God calls the Israelites back to him, it is actually built on the foundation of mercy and built on the foundation of grace. That forgiveness is always possible and that life in Yahweh is always an option no matter how far away they are banished. God will continue to show compassion for them just as he has shown compassion for them when they were in Egypt. But what we also see is that not only is grace and forgiveness on the table, but we also see that God will take the initiative in changing the hearts of his people as well. Whereas the hearts of the Israelites were formerly hardened, God tells his people this, that the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your hearts and with all your soul and live. The ability for God to command the people to obey him with all your hearts and with all your soul is only possible because Yahweh has taken the initiative first. That Yahweh has circumcised their hearts so that they can love and so that they can obey them with all of their hearts and with all of their souls. And so what are the blessings the Israelites will receive when their hearts are renewed? Through a circumcised heart, they can experience life in the promised land. God will change their hearts so that they have the ability to obey and follow the wisdom of God's commands. God will change their hearts so that their hearts will be filled with joy in the fulfillment of God's promises and the fulfillment of God's blessings in their midst. And God will fill their hearts with a desire for goodness and obedience. And those are the results of a circumcised heart. 
But the thing is, we as Christians, we too have also received a circumcised heart as well. But we have also received so much more than that. For God, not only did he take the initiative with the Israelites, but God has also taken the initiative with us as well through his son, Jesus Christ. That through Christ's death, we also see that forgiveness and grace are always an option. That through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, all of us have an option to turn back to God no matter how far we are away from him or what we have done in this life. In life, it's true that we often experience hopelessness when we see that there's no option, when we see there's no other path, when there's no other opportunities and we're stuck on the same road of discontent, stuck on the same road of decay. But through Christ's death, we actually see another road appear before us, a road that leads to unconditional forgiveness and radical unconditional love. There's a hope for us because we realize that we are no longer stuck with a dead and diseased heart, that a renewed heart is actually indeed possible. And often I, I think of this radical renewal uh, like the Japanese art of kintsugi. And in this art, the artisan will take shattered pieces of pottery. You know, you, you accidentally drop a dish on the floor. They'll take this dish back or this pot back and they will join it back together with gold to take what was once broken and useless into something that is whole and beautiful to restore this pottery back with a sense of worth and purpose. And in Christ, I believe he does something similar with our hearts as well, as he joins the shattered pieces back together so that our lives can be filled with goodness, worth, and purpose, to be able to live for something radically different, to be renewed and to be able to live in and to serve in God's kingdom. And this renewal, is made even more extravagant, and that through Christ's resurrection, we are promised something that far outweighs anything in this world. We are shown and we are promised a future where not only our hearts are mended, but we are given an entirely new heart and a new body, a pure heart that is imperishable and a body that is also imperishable, that will never end in death a heart that is filled with wisdom and joy, a heart that always seeks to promote goodness in ourselves and in the world around us, a heart that can truly love God in all of our entirety and in all of our being. And this is the hope for the future that awaits us all. To not just have a renewed life, but to have an entirely new life, a life where all the things of the past will be simply a distant memory. And so today, as we reflect on such a wonderful promise as this, I encourage us to stir within our own hearts a desire for our God, a desire for him through our life, through our wisdom, through our emotions, and also through our choices and our actions, to love him with our entire being. So let us come together in prayer today. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have taken the first step in mending our broken hearts. We confess to you, Lord, that we do not see goodness in our own lives and in the world around us. Uh, we confess to you, Lord, that sometimes our hearts even actively seek to harm. 
Lord, we, we thank you that forgiveness is always an option for us, that we are never too far from forgiveness. Uh, you have shown us such a magnificent and unfathomable love in sending us your son to live with us and to die for us. You've done a wonderful work in our hearts as you slowly but methodically bring healing even to the deepest areas of our souls and into our lives. We thank you that you've restored us with a sense of deep meaning and purpose in your kingdom. And we thank you that you have looked at us with compassion, that you desire to give us a pure heart and an imperishable body in the age to come. Uh, so we pray that from now until the other side of eternity, we will constantly reflect on your goodness in our hearts, that our entire being seeks to love you and to know you. And we pray all of this in your precious son's name. Amen. I invite us all to rise as we sing a song of response.